Okay, we can call it George. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Right. So we give it an entirely different name. Right. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. George. Okay, let's talk about George. Yeah. (laughs) But then, and then, yes, and then what was the other question? Sorry for saying Sorry Media presents the Purr Podcast, the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team. If you're dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek. Hello, this is Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. And this is Dr. Susan Little. And Chippy and Chippy. <laughs> Chippy, the uh, honorary feline. That's right. And yes, yes. <laughs> and we have a special guest. Yes, Dr. Jessica Quimby. Thank you for having me. Oh, awesome. We're very excited. Yeah. I think you're the official Chippy holder. <laughs> yes, yes, you are. Yes, you are. So if you go to our Patreon accounts, which a lot of people do yet, but they will, uh, you can see Chippy and Jessica and Dr. Susan and myself. All on video. So uh, um, we have to adjust the room a little bit for the video. <laughs> well, why there are cushions behind yes. us? Um, there's a reason. The major reason. Yeah. 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 There's an interesting painting or photo behind us. It's art. There's art behind us. And um, it's probably better that you don't see it. <laughs> just saying. All right. Yeah. So we kind of covered the art for today, <laughs> uh, but uh, but we're very happy to have Jessica here. And what are we going to talk about today? Oh, I'm not going to talk. We don't talk to you. It's no. been a little minute. Yeah. yeah. It's been a little minute. It's been a little while. So yeah. you know, so the world ended. Uh, here we yeah. Are. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so so we're recording this. <laughs> we're recording this at Western Veterinary Conference. And it's my first time back here since the pandemic started. Yeah, yeah. and um, it just it the uh, the few years of the worst of the pandemic felt like twenty years somehow. It didn't. It yes. was really yeah. really long. It's funny. Last night I actually ate in the in the restaurant that we ate in in <gasps> February of no. twenty twenty when we were sitting there going, "Do you think this is going to be a thing?" And yeah. Like, oh, and then, <laughs> yeah. Oh, and then March happened. Everything yeah. fell apart, right? Oh my gosh, that's really kind yeah. of a, hopefully that's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully that's a good thing. So so everybody's finally back and and uh and that's great. So yeah, yeah, it's uh it's really great to see people again, that's for sure. So um so since we talked to you last time, some uh, uh, some things have happened in chronic kidney disease, right? Yeah. That sure. um, something's always happening. Something's always sure. happening. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, so I think that's a kind of a good uh, uh, way to enter this, because uh, I would like to talk about FGF twenty three because I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> That's very fair. That's very fair. Um, it's like any new test, right? You, right. Yeah, we need yeah. a little like test driving of the new test before yeah. we figure it out. Well, and and I think you know we have a lot of research. We have a lot of studies yes. always with FGF twenty three. That yeah. for years we've said, well, yeah. we don't have that commercially yeah. available. Yeah, so we well, and now here we have it, and everybody's like, oh, now no, what do I do? Um, <laughs> so, but I I think really what it comes down to is is thinking about chronic kidney disease and metabolic bone disease, um, and um, we're really, and it's also related to phosphorus too. We're really increasing our understanding there, but I also feel like 
we have a lot more that we that yeah. we don't understand. Yeah. Right. And having that test available will hopefully increase our understanding. And the other big thing that I think has come out is this concern with um, the development of the possible correlation between developing hypercalcemia if you're too phosphorus if you if you do too much phosphorus restriction mm -hmm. so there's been a couple of articles that come out from the royal veterinary college group yes. showing that if we put um, a cat with you know a pretty boring like low-end phosphorus on a really phosphorus restricted diet then we could actually um, they're seeing a correlation with the development of hypercalcemia that then resolves after you would put them on a more mm. moderate uh, phosphorus um, a diet of you know with phosphorus content and so um, we've also just now launched some updates to the IRIS website. Yes, that yeah. was the other thing. I yeah, yeah. So there's a, there's a great, if you haven't seen that, there's a great section about um, actually how to potentially think about this correlation with phosphorus and FGF23 and, you know, what we do in that regard. Um, and so I think where it's probably going to come about is that um, we'll need to really hopefully use that to determine maybe who does need more phosphorus restriction and, and, who and who doesn't, because perhaps serum phosphorus is not telling us the entire story, right? So you could have a normal serum phosphorus, but you could have an elevated FGF23, and maybe then that patient does, we need more action. We need to potentially, then that's the patient that we want to have on the phosphorus-restricted diet or more phosphorus-restricted, I should say. And then if you had both a normal or low-end phosphorus and a normal FGF23, then maybe we really shouldn't be- Maybe we shouldn't. We yes. shouldn't yes. be extremely phosphorus-restricting that patient because um, that would probably, they don't need it. Mm -hmm. You know, their, their body is dealing with um, taking care of those substances. So, you know, as kidney function decreases, we see a decreased ability to get rid of phosphorus. And that's when the FGF3, FGF23 kicks in to try to help right. um, balance things out. Um, All right. I have a question. Yeah. So uh, I'm a simple surgeon. So let's go back to the <laughs> basics here because we're dying immediately. Can you explain to Okay. And yeah, then so also what... what uh, you, you talk about uh, phosphorus restriction. How much are we talking about? Yeah. So um, details, details. Mm -hmm. So and so and I'm going to give the big the big picture. So right. and so kind of like I said, I think the big picture to me is as that kidney function declines, you have a decreased ability to get rid of phosphorus, mm -hmm. and FGF23 um, then is going to be triggered to be released to try to help you get rid of phosphorus. Right. So it's going to help both decrease intestinal uptake and then increase. Um, uh, you know, elimination through the kidneys, essentially, right? Um, and so it's it's really a biomarker, essentially, um, in some regards. Thing. Yeah, and so we've that's one of the things that we've always, I, I don't think we quite know yet, is is it really more of a biomarker or is it the target? And we know for sure that FGF23 goes up as kidney disease worsens. And at some point in time, it's no longer able to save you, right? That's when PTH then becomes oh, elevated and you get oh. very dysregulatory. <laughs> I know, it's, yeah. it's very concerning. Yeah, yeah. Very, yeah. Very, <laughs> it's very concerning. Thanks, <laughs> thanks, thanks, Chippy. Thanks, Chippy, for warning us. Thank you. Um, so, you know, that's when we start to see a problem then is in the later stages of kidney disease, you have complete dysregulation of that system. Right. Um, and it's no longer able to compensate. Yeah. Um, it, it can, it can, it's lost its ability to uh, re try to rebalance correct, itself, essentially. Correct. Right. And that's yeah. where then we truly get the renal secondary hyperparathyroidism, that the system is really offset at that point in time. 
Um, right. So, yeah, so that's that's kind of kind of how I would think of it um, in terms of it's it's really trying to help us uh, regulate that even before you see an increase in phosphorus, which I think is the key point. And, and why did they call it so difficult instead of just <laughs> I mean, we can call it George. George. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So we give an entirely different name. Right. Yeah. Yeah. George. Okay. Let's talk about George. Yeah. <laughs> but then, and then, yes. The and then, what was the other question? Real restricted phosphorus. Okay. So, yes. um, so right, units were never my <laughs> no. Okay. But um, so you know, most of our um, most of our uh, when we look at the, what, what I like to do is kind of dial the kidney diets down to, and having a really good idea of what actually the formulation of the kidney diets is. And right. I work with, uh, Dr. Bell Parker, who's a nutritionist, yeah. and she, she often will provide us with, a, you know, a, a list of all of those different ingredients. She actually right. has a great review in veterinary clinics of North America that oh, provides cool. some of that information, right. but we're looking at it on the scale of a mig or gram per hundred kcals. Mm -hmm. um, and so that information is obviously available for every diet if you go and research it, but we're looking at typically the kidney diets range from somewhere in between 80 and 120 um, for phosphorus. Right. And, um, uh, you know, like a normal, our, Regular diets may be more like 300, 400. Uh, they're certainly above 200. So in general, there's a there's a range mm. in the kidney diets, but most of them are like at least in the low hundreds to mm. less than 100. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, the studies that were done where uh, they were concerned about over phosphorus, you know, overly restricting phosphorus, the, that diet in that study was actually less than 100. Mm. So when they're saying then you need more of a... Um, a moderate phosphorus restriction, we're potentially talking more like 130 mm. to 150, 160, somewhere in there. And so I would then need to have a better understanding of the components of the kidney diets. And that's true of phosphorus, and that's true of um, potassium yeah. and protein too. Yeah, like everything. I want to individualize the diet to that particular patient right. based on what I think they need. Do they need more potassium? Is this cat really muscle wasted? Do right. I think it needs a diet that's a little bit higher in protein? protein. Yeah. On the, you know, there's a huge range there is. when you look at the kidney diet. So I, I don't think people normally, uh, you know, appreciate, appreciate yeah. how different they can actually be, although they're all kind of in the- Under one umbrella. Uh, uh, under right? one umbrella, yeah. yeah. So we think a lot more about that. Um, and also thinking, well, if this cat doesn't have an elevated phosphorus, and then potentially if it's FGF23 is not elevated, should I really be putting it on a kidney diet that has less than 100, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> you know, then maybe that's where we might see um, problems. And the RVC studies did demonstrate that, that then if they change those cats to, um, you know, somewhere in the mid hundreds, that that hypercalcemia resolved in some cats. Um, so that's mm. kind of what we know right now, truthfully. Right. I think we need to know a lot more. Right. Um, and so that's, that's really um, the current struggle um, in terms of kind of better understanding calcium phosphorus metabolism, where does FGF23 play into it? And really, I would encourage folks to really have a better understanding of what the components of individual diets are so that we can better individualize um, therapy. And then of course the cats come along and they're like, well, I don't, yeah. want, I don't want that one. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I don't mind the diet. No. Can I, can I see yeah. the menu? Please? Right, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So so that's where the struggle gets real, right? Yeah. And then that's when we're 
Also thinking about how we can make them feel better. Do we use appetite stimulants then to encourage um, the consumption if we're trying to transition them? It's a bit of a paradigm shift in a lot of ways. It is, yeah. And one of the things that strikes me is um, a common sort of mantra through um, uh, talking to vets about chronic kidney disease is just what you were alluding to the change in diet issue because we're trying to change a diet usually in at least a middle-aged if not senior cat and that's always a little bit harder right. so it, you know quite often we would talk about like do, do it early you know yeah. do it earlier when they're when yeah. they're still eating well and they might accept the transition and that apparently, it's not as benign as it sounds. No, to do yeah. That. And truthfully, I never kind of bought into that <laughs> that one because they're going to change their minds down the road anyway. Oh, absolutely. So you, you know, yeah. and and so now we also, of course, have early care diets out there that you you would need to think more about the stage and what yeah. are my actual specific nutritional goals for that individual patient. Right. Um, and I mean, that's hard. That's I understand hard. that that's hard when you're. In a busy practice, and but chronic kidney disease patients are hard. I mean, they they, are. They, know, I know. Like, I, I sometimes feel like it's like, ah, it's kidney disease. Like, right. how hard can it be? But when you really dial it down, it's just so complex. Yeah. Um, so complex. And as we as we get more tools like F, the FGF twenty three, it's Same almost like it's George. <laughs> George, is it the same thing. <laughs> Can I call him George? Yeah, George. <laughs> no. yeah. It, it like it peels back a layer in a way. Yeah. And then you go, oh, there's more. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. You just opened up a kettle of fish. So, so the big question is, every renal case, is, case should get you tested on or not? What, what is your... I mean, I, I guess ideally, but mm -hmm. we're often... I mean, I think for us as academicians, that's actually quite challenging because we don't necessarily have IDEX and then we're sending out that right. test. And um, yeah. I would like to have that on every patient so I could better understand what was going on, but I may not be able to, and the the client may not yeah. be able to afford that. Right, right, right. So but the ideal scenario, so I'm just trying to think, does this change your regular work of all my cats? So mm -hmm. you would, because, you know, that, we used to have only uh, urea and creatinine. That's it. Right. And, right. And now we have all these other tests that are coming up. And and so, how does it change your yeah. your work? So I would, and I would, as a general statement, say it's not just about creatinine, right? right? So I'm I'm looking at a much more holistic view of that patient. And if I had that FGF twenty three as well, and especially if I could track it over time, yeah, I think that's that, a key that point. may be where the <clears throat> most value to it Correct. would be, right? Yes. And I'm tracking their weight and their muscle mass right. and yeah. their other electrolytes and tracking these things over time. And we truthfully, I don't think are going to know the utility of that until we are using it and looking yeah. at it over time in a clinical setting because we've only had it previously you know in in research papers yeah. and as opposed to in the clinical setting so yeah. i think we're going to learn a lot right. in the next couple of years here so um, people if you can get your hands on it use it and if yeah. not it's not the end of the world because you have all those other yeah. 
parameters. Yeah, and I would also say the one thing that I did learn about the test itself, because we were quite curious, like what is the what is the assay? Right. It is actually the same Japanese plate uh, from the same Japanese company that actually people frequently use in the literature. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, and they basically are just acquiring that plate and then running it mm -hmm. in a centralized location. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that that helps because you know methodologically, yeah, it's, it's similar. Yeah, it's yeah. similar. Right. You're you're not. Uh, um, uh, completely separated from Correct. what's in the papers, Correct. right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think. And, and, and just to go back to the <laughs> basics, the papers were published way before this came out. Oh, yes. and that was from a Japanese group. Um, well, most of the papers are probably from the the RBC group. In, okay, in, um, so that's where it started. Jonathan Elliott. They use. Yes, they use that assay. Yeah. 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 So and when and and Val Parker has done a lot of work at Ohio State too. Right. So we have to get. I mean, it's actually a pain to get this plate into the country. Like it comes yeah. from Japan. It's like thousand dollars for oh, the man. the assay, and right. and then it has to be imported, and you know, it just so it there's a lot of expense, was right. which is why it was never really clinically feasible right. before. So with the work that's been out there previously, like that's what has needed to be done. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I hope that having this more available, similar to like the RAS fingerprint, now we're going to see more research. Mm -hmm. Now we're going to see more research and continue to improve our understanding of what's going and, um, you know, what's what we would recommend. And I bet with IDIS, you get the numbers too now. So this test will be used by a lot of people. Correct. So that will really help. Yeah. Right. right. So, Hopefully and, um, and yeah, so, um, and the RBC group has written, there's a little vignette on the IRIS website now um, right. about it as well. So the new IRIS guidelines does talk about it. And then um, I think um, there's those education pieces that are on the IRIS website as yeah. well that talk much more in detail than we have today that would be a good resource for folks to check out. So we'll put a link in our show notes right. to, yeah. uh, to the uh, um, IRIS. Yeah. Yes, we, we, uh, we can do that. So... Um, <clears throat> So I uh, try to trying to kind of sum all this up. Um, maybe it's important for veterinarians to realize, like this is new. Maybe don't try to draw too many conclusions right off the bat, especially with one measurement. Correct. Right. Yeah. yeah. We yeah. need to see how this plays out. Right. And I and I think your your point about trends in cats trends. as well. Um, right. Again, I one thing that's really valuable to me is seeing trends over time yeah. in that kidney disease patient. Yeah. And one thing that I don't know that we necessarily appreciate so much is actually how much their values tend to yeah. jump around. Yeah, yeah, we see we see that for clinical studies where I'm rechecking them regularly when you probably wouldn't do that clinically. You know, and their creatinine is just yeah. bouncing around and their phosphorus is bouncing around. So you're you're looking more for the big trends for yeah. them. Where is it yeah. headed in general? Correct. Versus what is it today? Right. Yeah. And blood pressure is the same way, yeah. weight's the is same it, way. It's funny. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so that brings up the question: What's the state of art right now for a chronic kidney patient when you get it? When do you start testing for them? How old have they to be? Mm -hmm. And when they start, when you start suspecting something, what are you going to do? Well, I mean, hopefully, we're getting routine lab work. Uh, you know, in our feline patients throughout their younger years. So once a year? Um, 
I, I mean, you know, the, the, the senior or the life stage guidelines would say in the younger, you know, young adult cat, even if we get one or two during that period, during that whole life, during that whole yeah. life period, that would be great. <laughs> but once they start to reach the, you know, seven to eight years, especially right. 10 years of age, then I'm really ideally wanting to look at things annually. Cause again, I'm, I'm looking for those trends. That's when I'm starting to see, you know, could the USG starting to drop? Right. I obviously, I want that urine, uh, you know, we're looking to see if some trends are happening with SDMA. I'm looking for weight loss, any indication that something small is coming right. along. And those trends, I think, are really important. And I, I would also argue that taking blood pressure when they're normal also gives us a good baseline right. for when things start to become abnormal as well, mm-hmm. especially when you start thinking about situational hypertension and like, what is that cat normally like in the hospital environment? So I, I really, I would like that nice baseline of, of data before we get to the age group where we might see the onset of kidney disease, because it will, it will better help me see it you know coming early um and you know we've always been looking for the more biomarkers for early detection of kidney disease but i do think people um you know for cats the usg is just so important and we do see them downtrend over time they just get closer and closer to 1035 and then yeah boop then it's 1025 and then you know it it fits in really well one of the other discussions going on um in that clint path right now is individualizing reference ranges right So, you know, the lab has a reference range, but if you have um, some data, like as you were saying from this cat when he was younger, what is he normally? And if you follow them over time, you get an idea of what is that cat normally? Yeah, and I would say also, you know, their diet makes a difference Mm -hmm. because their USG, if they're eating entirely a canned diet, their USG might actually be a little bit decreased, uh, even as a healthy cat. And then I don't want to misinterpret that as being, uh, you know, early kidney disease. If they were eating, if I switched them to a dry diet, then their USG would would go up. Yeah. 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 So is USG then the routine test that you do for most of them, or are you still doing the whole plethora? Because I, I, I always look from a clinical perspective, I'm a veterinarian in practice, yeah, I can do 10 tests, but if mm-hmm. I don't do anything with the test. Right. Then... But what we commonly see is that they only get blood work right. and they don't get the UA. Yeah. Okay. Very those, those, it's that's very the mind shift that. that we have to have. Yeah. And is, is Iris mm-hmm. really emphasizing this? Yeah, I mean, I of course, we're always get the P, get the P. Yeah. Right. But I mean, and it's funny because as we enroll normal cats as controls in our studies, I I mean, I mainly work with chronic kidney disease cats now, and right. it's very easy to get urine yeah. because yeah. wait an hour. Yeah, they just wait, wait an hour. hour. But I fully recognize the trouble and the problem right. in your clinical practice of trying to get the urinalysis from the young normal cat because they're very good at what they do. Yes. I mean, they can sit there the entire day. Yes. <laughs> and their bladder is still really tiny. But if you've literally waited eight hours to get a urine sample yeah, and yeah. the bladder is still really tiny, yeah. and I if I can't achieve that goal, at least I can feel pretty good about the fact that it's probably normal. It's probably yeah. normal. Yeah. Yeah. They can Whereas, correct. And if that cat comes to me with a moderately sized bladder and it urinates in the carrier and then an hour later we have more urine. I'm probably I'm too. probably right. going to see a USG right. that is decreased. Because we always forget so much the emphasis on clinical exam 
and, and that's history kind of and that's what you're thinking you know yeah. this is this is just a common sense of okay so it's a very small bladder and it takes a long time and it's still a small bladder <laughs> he's concentrating that's that common yeah. sense that then kicks in yeah yeah so so we do i mean we want our full assessment right especially as we reach the ages of eight to ten and, and then beyond we want cbc chem ua t4 blood pressure right like that would be our core um, and to ideally recommend to folks. And again, so we're creating baseline data and we can track trends over time. And then once we know that they have kidney disease, you know, we're seeing abnormalities, we've decided it's consistent with chronic kidney disease, then we're iris staging them. And then right. that's when you would be assessing your proteinuria, um, determining it. And that's different than, than dogs, right? Because often they start their disease as proteinuric right. and that's not necessarily the case in cats. Yeah. Um, it can come as a sequela of their tubular interstitial disease. Yeah. Cats are always different. Of course. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, it, you know, I, it, it's a bit of a double-edged sword that we've had new tools uh, come to us for chronic kidney disease cats, SDMA, FDF23, yes. right? And, but then, um, you the 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 devil is in the details of now like how do I interpret all that and what do, what do I do with it so yeah. it's a little bit of a double well sword. And I think that's the that's the thing that I would really again uh, highlight is that they're just they're just not all the same mm -hmm. you know every yeah. one of these cats is a little bit different in terms of how their kidney disease manifests and how it's going to progress for them we still don't understand why some cats progress quicker than others yeah. and why is this cat you know i saw a stage three cat the other day normal blood pressure not anemic yeah. potassium is fine yeah like, yeah and he's sitting there looking at you why like, am I here? you know like his main problem is constipation yeah. he has a water balance <laughs> issue yeah and all the other parameters yeah. are yeah. go he just needs a little more water right yeah. you know so it's just you just we don't know why it is why? so different from one cat to another right unfortunately right. so it really is individualized medicine from mm -hmm. that in that regard isn't so. this the same thing in people with chronic kidney disease, that there's that much variation? Well, there's so many different types of kidney right. disease in people, more, right? And, and a lot of times it's more protein-losing nephropathy type conditions, glomerular right. conditions. They have uh, congenital forms, uh, you know, immune-mated disease. The one thing that we think is the most like probably what happens in cats mm -hmm. in terms of tubular interstitial disease is Mesoamerican nephropathy, Ooh, um, wow. which is, um, and that that's probably a, there, this had many other names, but basically the syndrome, if you will, and it was a mystery for a while, apparently in the literature that, uh, you know, workers in hot environments and working in agricultural practices where they don't get a lot of water and it's very, very hot, right. they're suffering basically little AKI events that's eventually leading them. And what's an AKI? And they're ending up with tubular interstitial disease, right. very similar to basically, you know, what I feel like we see in cats. And that's been seen in various, uh, you know, very, very hot climates around the world. So that form, I would say of all the things, that form of kidney disease in people is probably the most similar to that right. in cats. But other than that, there's there's many, many, many different types, right? Is yeah. it glomerular? Is it not? 
but you also have some degree of similarity when it comes to end stage disease. So what, whatever the initiating cause of your kidney disease would be, some of the processes would they end start stage, to converge. They start right? to converge, yeah. right? So we say things like are a final common denominator, like fibrosis and hypoxia and oxidative yeah. stress yeah. and these other things that um, everyone would struggle with, regardless of what the cause of their kidney disease was. This is a great ending of our first part. Sorry to, uh, to do the timeout. I saw that Dr. Susan wanted to ask another question, but uh, so and I will do a little cliffhanger. I would love to hear in our next episode what the changes are for Iris. So mm -hmm. what are things that have yeah. changed there? Uh, so the, and uh, and then we'll be back in uh, in a week. Okay. So thank you. You're welcome. Wonderful. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Susan, would you like to do the honors? Um, I, I will try. My my asthma is making it hard for me to talk today, but um, maybe Yola, you should take over. <laughs> my friend is okay, this is this was the purpose. The way my way through it. Susan, who cannot talk, which is sometimes really nice. Yeah. Um, so. <laughs> you can, yeah. <laughs> But uh, you can follow us on perpodcast.net and then we have a handle social media at perpodcast. We have an amazing Patreon account. So uh, become a member and uh, and please hopefully have soon have some news about some social media yeah. efforts that we're going yeah. to do. So mm -hmm. this is going to be very exciting. All right. See you next week. Dr. Susan Little is a feline medicine specialist with two cat-only hospitals in Ottawa, Canada. She is best known as an international speaker and as the author and editor of two textbooks, The Cat, Clinical Medicine and Management, and August, Consultations in Feline Internal Medicine. Along with three cats, she also admits to owning two dogs. And you can follow her on social media with the handle at CatPetSusan. Dr. Yerla Kirkenstein is a diplomate of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally invasive surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently at Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at G-V-E-T-S-X. This episode is made possible by the generous sponsorship of the Take the Pledge Against Struvites in Pets Facebook page. Did you know there are three easy steps to treat bladder stones in cats with lower urinary tract signs? Step one is to take a radiograph, and if there is a stone present in the bladder, step two is to use the Minnesota Urolith app for iPhone and Android to determine the most likely type of stone. Step three is to treat the cat for at least two to three weeks with an appropriate diet and see if the stone gets smaller. If so, keep feeding that diet until the stone is completely gone on follow-up radiographs. If not, check compliance with the owner and look for alternative treatment options. Join veterinarians worldwide to take the pledge not to remove struvite stones by surgery anymore. The opinions of this podcast are those by Dr. Susan Little and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. Veterinary medicine is a complex profession, and often there are multiple diagnostic and therapeutic options for different disease processes. If you're a pet owner with questions, please go to your local veterinarian. If you're a veterinary professional, ask your questions on our Instagram page, at per podcast. Thank <sniffs> you.